0: I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. Go. There are events in life that impact us so dramatically that we're never the same after witnessing them. They have a lingering influence over us. A soldier who's been in combat has the horrors of war indelibly burned into his memory. Astronauts who've been outside the earth's atmosphere tell us that they no longer see life on planet earth from the same perspective. A father who was there For the birth of his baby comes away with a whole new attitude toward his work and his wife and his responsibilities. But none of these experiences rival the impact that a vision of God has on a person's life. For once you meet God, you are never, ever the same. Moses climbed a mountain as a simple shepherd, but near the top... He met God in a burning bush, and he returned a champion and a deliverer of a nation. Jacob was a scoundrel, but one night he wrestled with God. Come daybreak, he was a new man with a new name, Israel, Prince of God. Saul hated Christians. Yet on the road to Damascus, he met the Jesus he'd been persecuting. And when he rose from his knees, the persecutor had turned preacher. Christianity's leading opponent was now its chief proponent. Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant young theologian. He wrote a massive, multi-volume, systematic theology. He called it Summa Theologica, which means the sum of the study of God. Boy, that's an ambitious title. But on his deathbed, Thomas had a vision of God's glory. And he said in response, What I have seen makes all that I have previously taught and written seem as but chaff to me, or literally straw. One glimpse of God's glory, one moment with majesty can do that. It can reorient and transform and revolutionize a man's entire perspective. You see, such was the case with Isaiah when he met God It was an experience that changed his life forever. In chapter 6, Isaiah recounts his vision of God, and he describes the radical impact that it had on the trajectory of his life. Isaiah's vision was threefold. He saw God. Then, in contrast to God's glory, he saw himself, which then led to him seeing people around him in a new light. Isaiah He saw God, he saw himself, he saw others, and he was never the same. Every one of us needs a similar vision of God. Well, in verse 1, Isaiah writes In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah's vision of God left such a profound impression, he never forgot the year it occurred. Historians refer to it as 740 B.C. But the prophet Isaiah, he always remembered it. He marked it on his calendar as the year that King Uzziah died. Hebrew tradition suggests that Isaiah was the younger cousin of Uzziah. This King Uzziah, he was a good and godly man. In fact, he may have mentored his cousin Isaiah. Uzziah uh, Uzziah occupied the throne for 52 years. That's a long time. That's the equivalent of 13 presidential terms. King Uzziah was a fixture on the leadership landscape of Judah. He was a source of security for Isaiah. And yet now, suddenly, shockingly, the king is dead. The throne is vacant. Uzziah is no longer in charge and Isaiah is tempted to panic. We've lost our leader. What will the nation do without Uzziah? What will I do? Isaiah thought. And yet it's then that God gives to Isaiah this vision. The throne isn't vacant after all. God still sits in majesty. God still calls the shots. God is still in control. And what was true for Israel of old is true for the church today. God uses men and we're thankful for their service But when one man's work is done, he raises up another. In fact, if the Lord tarries one of these days, I'm going to be gone. I'm probably going to croak over at Bay Creek Park on the backside of that third lap I run around over there. Charles Wesley once wrote, God buries His workmen, but He carries on His work. None of us are indispensable. The truths that we teach are true and biblical and eternal. They've been taught from centuries past and they transcend any one teacher. It's the Holy Spirit who chooses the tools and continues the work. Well, Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up in the train of His robe. It filled the temple. Hey, this is amazing. For a moment, The veil which separates the physical realm from the spiritual realm suddenly gets peeled back. And Isaiah is given a glimpse into the throne room of the eternal God. He sees God's sovereignty. He is sitting on a throne. He sees God's splendor. He is high and lifted up. He sees God's superiority for His train fills up the temple. Evidently, the robe that God was wearing filled the entire temple. The word translated train or shul, it means "hem." It was the fringe or it was the border on the bottom of a robe. The train of God's robe filled and dominated this room. You see, in the ancient world, the hymn of a person's garment, it designated their authority. Old Testament priests, they had... Their genealogies embroidered into the border of their robes. For their appointment to office, their authority was the result of their pedigree. And so their lineage was shown on the hem of their robe. A nobleman's rank was often written on the border of his garment. You remember when Saul walked into the cave where David and his men were hiding. You remember David snuck up behind him with a sword in his hand. And he clipped off the hem of the king's robe. Later, he apologized to Saul for his reckless act. Even though David could have killed Saul, but didn't, the mere act of defacing the border of the king's royal robe was still an insult to his God-ordained authority. You recall the woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 long years. Oh, she wanted to be healed. Desperately so. So she reached out in faith. And what did she touch? The hem of Jesus' robe. For by reaching her hand for the border of his tunic, she was trusting in Jesus' authority over her illness and sickness. Thus, when Isaiah sees the hem of God's robe filling up the temple, he realizes that God's authority is unsurpassed. He is indeed the Most High God. And then in verse 2, Isaiah notices that above the throne stood seraphim. Each one had six wings With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. You know, according to the Bible, angels come in two varieties cherubim and seraphim. And neither form even remotely resembles the popular image we often see of the cute, chubby, cuddly little baby angels. There's no such thing. In the Bible, angels are mighty warriors brandishing a sword they strike fear in the hearts of those who encounter them in fact this word seraphim it means burning ones these were flying torches above god's throne you could say it was a heavenly air show you know the united states air force they have the blue angels the seraphim were the fiery angels and isaiah reports that these angels had six wings Two wings covered their face. Why? Because the glory of God was too much for their eyes to handle. Two covered their feet because they felt too humble to stand in God's presence. And two wings kept them suspended over the throne. It speaks of their tireless, constant service and praise to God. And then one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You know, they could have cried, Merciful, merciful, merciful. Or faithful, faithful, faithful. Or mighty, mighty, mighty. For God is certainly merciful and faithful and mighty. But instead, the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy. They were caught up in God's holiness. You see, the word holy means set apart. It speaks of God's uniqueness. That He is a cut above all others. That God has no peer. That there is no one like our God. You know, it's one thing to say God is love. But when I say God is holy, it means that He loves like no one else loves. To say God is strong is true. But to say He's holy means that He's strongest. Whatever the subject you're discussing, when you say God is holy, you're saying He's in a class. All by himself. And notice the angels. They shout of his holiness three times. Holy, holy, holy. Why three holies? <laughs> I would suppose Isaiah didn't want to leave anybody out. For there are three members to the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three are worthy to be praised for its holiness. And then in verse 4. Isaiah describes what happens next. And what a sight it must have been. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. I mean, you can't really call it an earthquake because Isaiah's not on earth. You could probably call it a heaven quake. Or maybe a God quake. God's might and the seraphim's shout shook the temple. His majesty and his glory filled up the room with his celestial smoke. All heaven quivers as the Almighty flexes his muscle. It could be the smoke that was released was to shield Isaiah, the human observer from the intensity of God's glory. Oh, what a sight it must have been. If you saw such a vision, what would be the first word out of your mouth? Well, if you're a holdover from the 60s, you'd probably say, Far out. Or if you're from the 70s, you might recall, or you might say, radical man. Or if you were a child of the 80s, you could say, excellent dude. Or if you're from the hood, you'd say, yo, that's bad, brother. <laughs> or if you're from the country, you might say, well, I'll be. <laughs> if you watch too many Gomorrah Pyle reruns, you could say, shazam. If you're like me and you're looking for a pun here, you could say, Holy smokes! Get it? After a vision like Isaiah's, I think you could say, Cool! Gnarly! Awesome! Or you could just say, Wow! But notice Isaiah's response, verse 5. So I said, Woe! Woe is me! For I am undone! Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah responds not with a wow, but with a woe. Woe is me. Isaiah doesn't say, wow, look at that. He says, woe, look at me. Instead of astonishment over what he's seen, Isaiah mourns, over what he's been. There is nothing like a vision of God to empty us of ourselves. I always question the validity of the person who runs around boasting and bragging about his or her experience with God. If they're pompous and proud, they haven't really met him. For whenever a person encounters the true God, his conscience is crushed by the depth of his own lack and sin, and deficiency. Up against the holy God, we're forced to face the disparity between our goodness and His goodness. Suddenly we realize, it's a grand canyon. You remember the effect that Job's vision of God had on him. Job had become so puffed up with pride, he had questioned and doubted the fairness of God in the dealings with man. Finally, God said, enough is enough. He shut Job up. God appeared to him in a whirlwind. And with a series of questions that only a holy God could answer himself, God begins to whittle an arrogant Job down to size. When he's done, Job says to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. A vision of God will do that. It will humble you. It restored Job to the proper perspective. Understand, Isaiah, he belonged to God long before he received this vision. He was a prophet. Hey, He was busy out telling other people what was wrong in their life, showing them their sin. That was his job. He served the Lord. Isaiah was a decent person. There were no major skeletons in his closet. He had nothing to cover up. But all of a sudden, with this vision, the light of God's holiness caused him to see himself as never before. God's 100 proof holiness exposed sin in Isaiah's life. He didn't even know existed. Isaiah became conscious of his true condition. You see, Isaiah's vision was a deep in the refrigerator kind of experience. Have you ever... Noticed a funny smell in the kitchen. Just a pungent odor. The other day I noticed this at our house. and I kind of was suspicious. I kind of knew where it was. And so I went looking deep into the refrigerator. Sure enough, there it was. There it was, stuck in the back of the refrigerator, left to rot. It's been said... Not until we see God as He really is can we see ourselves as we really are. Here God does one of those deep refrigerator kinds of cleansings on Isaiah. He goes into the back of his heart, deep into his life, to find out where that pungent odor is coming from. You see, Isaiah didn't see his sinfulness until he first saw God's holiness. And then he says in verse 4, Woe is me, for I am undone. The word undone It means lacking or deficient. Isaiah is admitting here, God, I don't measure up to your standards. God, I'm not what you have expected me to be. And this is always the reaction. Whenever I come in contact with God's holiness, I become conscious of some holes in my character. And in my life. And notice Isaiah, he doesn't just say he has unclean lips. He knows that his problem is not just an occasional slip of the lip. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. His problem is not just what he says. It runs deeper. It's who he is. His words were issues. They were the flow of his heart. He's admitting here that it's his tendency to be unclean. Our problem too lies deeper than our lips. Our heart is defiled. It's the inner parts of us that need to be cleansed. And through this vision, God is breaking Isaiah. Understand, before God can use any of us, He first has to break us. In Psalm 51, verse 17, it was King David who wrote, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David, too, had to be broken. You see, broken is coming to the end of my rope and realizing that Jesus is there. True humility is learning over and over again that it's not I, but Christ. And notice the letter C in Christ. What is it but an I that's bent over? A C is an I that's willing to bend and bow Before God. It always amazes me to remember. The broken things that God uses. Gideon's jars. Mary's vial of perfume. Even our Lord's own body on the cross. They were all broken. Before they could serve God's purposes. You recall the little boy who brought the five loaves to Jesus. Jesus did four things with that bread. He took it. Then he blessed it. Then he broke it. Then he gave it. Perhaps you too have been taken by Jesus. He's taken you out of the world. He's brought you to himself. He's made you his child. And boy has he blessed you. He's blessed you abundantly. And he wants to give your life in service for him. But understand. Between the blessing and the giving. You have to be broken. There's no other way. As you know, sometimes I refer to the cinematic classics to illustrate my sermons. That's what I'm going to do this morning. There's a scene from Rocky IV. Didn't know that was one of the classics, did you? There's a scene from Rocky IV when the menacing Russian heavyweight Ivan Drago he looks at Rocky and he says, I must break you. I did it better this morning. I, I, I kind of messed that up. I'm to get my Russian on here. Hold on a minute. <laughs> I must break you. It's better. And, and, and when we think of being broken... That's sort of what comes to our mind, isn't it? And that's kind of the process we envision. God is going to bust my chops, man. God is going to break me and put me out of commission. But that's not God's intention. Not at all. God is no Ivan Drago. He breaks us to better us. He breaks us to use us. You see, even after we're saved, we're still too full of ourselves. And if He fed us to folks, immediately they'd choke on our arrogance. We cause indigestion. That's why He breaks us first to make us digestible. Brokenness is painful. Oh, but it's necessary. Oscar Wilde once put it, How else but through a broken heart may the Lord Christ enter in. Before the wine can flow, the grape first has to be crushed. And this is true with us. Oswald Chambers once observed, God can never make us wine if we object to the fingers He uses to crush us. If God would only use His own fingers and make us broken bread and poured out wine in a special way. But when He uses someone whom we dislike, a pastor, or a professor, or a boss, or an ordinary neighbor, or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit... And He makes those the crushers we object. And then Chambers concludes, we must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. God alone knows exactly what it's going to take to bring you to the place that He wants you. That's why you shouldn't fight it. The clay needs to submit to the will of the potter if it's going to be fashioned into the vessel that God can use. This is what Isaiah did. And the results are in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. The New Testament parallel is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, when Isaiah repents, there is an amazing reaction in heaven. All activity comes to a screeching halt. The posts of the temple that have been shaken suddenly stop. The cries of praise cease. The holy smoke dissipates and clears. Heaven suddenly comes to a standstill. Incredibly, all the attention shifts from the God of the universe to this lowly human, one of billions, a Hebrew named Isaiah. This is surprising. And it has incredible implications. This is like stopping the London Philharmonic Orchestra because one trumpet player coughs. I mean, all of the seraphim halt their holies to send one of their own with a hot coal to purge the lips of a single sinner. Here is God's grace and mercy on display. God loves us that much that He is willing to call off His own praises just to purge. One repentant heart. The seraph, he flies to the altar. He uses the sacred tongs to pick off a hot brisket. He then takes that burning coal and he flies straight to Isaiah. And he touches the brand to his lips. He touches Isaiah at the very point of his impurity. And oh, how we need a similar touch from God. I know you love God. I know you desire His touch of warmth and comfort and power and healing. But has He touched you with a purifying touch? Or have you missed the point? Once I, I went to the doctor for a checkup and I had a mole on my neck that my nurse wife thought looked suspicious and wanted me to have removed. And I was thinking that they would wax it off. Or that they would put a little solution on it and it would just sort of dissolve off. But I underestimated this procedure. Nothing cosmetic going on here. The doctor told me that the mole had to be burned off. Ouch. Understand, God deals with sin two ways. He pardons and He purges You see, the moment you're saved, he pardons your sin. The judge sits at the bench in heaven and he declares you forgiven and clean and perfect in Christ. But the judge, he's also a surgeon who cuts you deeply and drains the infection. And he puts a hot coal right to the sinful spot. He cauterizes the wound. He purges us. Back to that mole Kathy wanted me to have burned off. Burning it off was a little bit more than I bargained for, but it got worse. Because you see, I actually had two moles. I kind of had matching moles on both sides of my neck. And when I was at the doctor, I was kind of so nervous, you know, burning stuff off my body and all. I was so nervous that I pointed to the wrong mole. And when I got home and Kathy just went to inspect the damage, she says, you knucklehead. That's the mole that was the problem right there. You burned off the wrong mole. It's a good thing that it wasn't dangerous because it's still there. I've never gotten up the courage to go back for another burning session. And yet, let, let me put you at ease. God is much more precise Trust me, He is. He knows exactly what it is that needs to be burned out of your life. You see, so often one sin leads to another. And if you don't catch the source of the sin, it will keep popping up in other areas. You can deal with action after action after action, but it does no good until you purge the attitude that is causing that sin. God works not just for us, but He works in us. He touches us at the point of our impurity. He deals with the root problem. Notice Isaiah admitted he was a man of unclean lips. And it's no surprise that God places the coal on his lips. Right where it's needed. You see, Isaiah's vision affected how he saw God. And how he saw himself. But, in it, but its effect was yet... To be complete, for it also changed how he saw other people. In verse 8, Isaiah says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying. Now notice, once Isaiah is purged of his sin, he hears God speak. Apparently his unclean lips had caused stopped up ears. It took Isaiah getting his heart in the right place before he could hear what God wanted to speak into his life. This is such an important principle for us to grasp. Most Christians spend countless hours trying to hear the voice of God. Here's the question i most often ask: How do I know when God speaks to me? We're all so worried that we might miss God's voice. And so what do we do? We strain and we stretch and we fret and we go out of the way to make sure we're listening. But notice what happens here. It's when Isaiah gets his heart right with God that he overhears God speaking. Guys, you only have to strain and stretch when you're out of position. Once Isaiah clears the static on the line, he hears God plainly. Once his sin is purged, all the bars pop up on his phone. If we spent the effort we use trying to listen to God, and if we spent it on obeying God and doing His will, we would hear His voice loud and clear. When Isaiah sees God and sees himself for who He is, he suddenly overhears God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And notice Isaiah's response, verse 8. Then I said, Here am I, send me. When God called Moses, remember, he had all kinds of excuses. When he called Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, I'm too young. But when God calls Isaiah, he's eager. He has seen the majesty of God. And he is not going to be content until his life adds to God's glory. The Lord hasn't even issued a direct call to Isaiah. Isaiah has just overheard him talking. He's seeking someone to sin, And that's when he jumps up and he says, Here am I, Lord. Send me. And though God's reply is short, it's profound. He tells Isaiah, Go. Go, Isaiah. You know, when you've seen God in all His glory, when you've been in His holy presence, when your sin has been purged from a hot coal from off the altar, Your spiritual senses, they grow sharper and clearer. You're hearing peaks. You become aware of issues that concern God. The spiritual world around you suddenly begins to open up in ways that you've never experienced. I mean, suddenly you're hearing sounds you've never heard before. You're hearing horrible sounds of footsteps. People that you know and love marching off to hell. You hear the groans of, of the God who died to save sinners and is desperate to reach them. You hear heaven rejoicing when one sinner repents. Suddenly suddenly you're hearing things you haven't heard before. Where have I been? How have I been so deaf? And it begins to dawn on you that the stakes are a lot higher than you thought. Serving God is no longer an optional pastime. It's It's now more than just a hobby. It's more than just something I do for fun and fellowship. This is serious business. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. You know, when folks ask me to describe how I was called to be a pastor, I always take them to this passage, Isaiah chapter 6. This is a special passage to me. For years, I lived my life from selfish ambition. Even even in my attempts to serve God, I had ulterior motives. What was in it for me? That, that, That was the bottom line. When I saw the Holy One, when God challenged me with a personal vision of His glory and His grace, everything changed. I became terribly conscious of my sin and my selfishness and my pride. And God purged me. He touched that hot coal to just the right place, He purified those motives, He touched me with a hot coal of His grace. Guys, we all want to know God's will, but here's what we overlook. God changes and cleanses before He calls. He breaks us. And then He gives us away. For me, it was when my heart was right. Then I overheard God's heart. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That's when I enlisted. And amazingly, God said go. Go. And I've been going ever since. Isaiah saw this vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died. That was 2,750 years ago. And God's desires haven't changed. He's still looking, still calling, still sending. God wants you and I to go. He wants to send us out with good news in a bad news world. But here's what Isaiah learned. A woe precedes the go. Before we do what God has called us to do, we have to be who God has called us to be. Here's my hope for you today. May God give you a fresh vision of His glory and His holiness. May a hot coal from off the altar find its way to that part of you that's sinful and that's holding you back. May you overhear God speak and then may you respond. Here am I, Lord. Send me. For once you've seen a vision of God, you will never be the same. Father, we thank you